0: Hello, Radio Kachimona listeners. Welcome to episode 52 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. In light of the Palestinian call for a global strike from January 21st through the 28th, I've decided to release this Patreon lit review that I recorded last year with friend of the podcast, Yesenia Medrano, on Angela Davis's book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. We discussed why freeing Palestine needs to be on every United Statesian leftist agenda, shared ideas about how leftist movements can use the hopeful spark that Davis inspires, and emphasized why global solidarity is necessary for liberation. Thank you to the Brighter Die patrons that have always supported me. I appreciate you all. Hope that y'all enjoy this episode. Bye. Hello, Cachimbonas. I am very excited to bring back someone you all know and love, Yesenia Vedado, back onto the podcast to discuss Freedom is a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement by Angela Davis. It's a handbook for developing global solidarity with all oppressed people. She reminds us that the prison-industrial complex is so normalized that its retributive responses are ingrained in our own emotional impulses. She asks, how do we react to attack, a counterattack, and that it is, quote, in collectivities that we find hope and optimism. Davis writes, as she details what we can learn from the past and ongoing social movements for freedom. She celebrates Black history because it is a centuries-old struggle to achieve and expand freedom for us all. Yesenia, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today to discuss this
1: book. Thanks for having me again.
0: The introduction is a back and forth with Frank Barat, who's a French activist and filmmaker, where he says, trying and trying again, never stopping. That is a victory in itself. Where could we use more of that energy on the left?
1: <laughs> I feel like this could be applied to a lot of things, and especially right now, where I feel like morale is just very low. Mm-hmm. I personally, because I've been focusing on immigrant rights work, feel like this is a good reminder for myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that Davis talked about in the book was just like the emphasis on being hopeful, being Mm -hmm. optimistic. And I feel like that's sometimes so easy to lose sight of, um, especially with everything going on. So I guess I would just use this as a reminder for myself and it can be applied to
0: so many issues happening right now yeah I agree that I feel like I feel this way with a lot of Angela Davis's stuff like she just instilled hope in me and Miriam Kaba says hope is a discipline and like I really feel that I think it really is hard to maintain especially when you're doing work like deportation defense and so I would recommend this book for that reason you know like I think we are kind of in a little period right now. I think just the ongoing COVID pandemic has just made things feel like everything is just in this weird limbo. It's Mm -hmm. like we don't have any CDC precautions anymore, but people are still getting COVID. And Mm -hmm. I feel like COVID did really slow things down and kind of reorient our schedules. And now it's like, we're just kind of in this weird in between where some people are back at work, but some people are not back at work and COVID is still here. (laughs) And it seems like there's like other contagious diseases on the horizon. And I feel like there's like questions of like, even like, should we go back to in-person organizing? Like, is it okay to do that? Or like amidst all these questions, the book is, it's honestly kind of like a kick in the ass, like do something.
1: Yeah. No, especially, I mean, even where I work now, I've heard some people say, like, yay, like, we're reopening our office and and people using the words, like, returning to normalcy, mm. sort of. Mm. And it's just kind of like, wait, I don't know if we want to return to <laughs> where we were before.
0: Right. Well, and it's also like, wait, let's slow down. Like, what do you mean return to normalcy when asylum seekers are not being let in at the border still? and mm-hmm. like, Title 42 and Remain in Mexico are effectively... Still in place, like these things that we urgently rallied around are still happening, and like we need to like pick up the momentum that we once had.
1: Yeah.
0: What does Angela Davis say is the unfinished work of the civil rights movement?
1: I think she kind of talked about this as well, like the civil rights movement, because it's like named the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. that it's very like restricted. Yeah, and it was more about. freedom movement Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that like having civil rights aren't isn't like an end Mm -hmm. so just kind of thinking more expansive to like what does it mean to continue like this movement for freedom and just keeping in mind that having civil rights is not doesn't necessarily mean that we're free
0: yeah definitely i think it's about demanding substantive rights and like you know the civil rights laws kind of, you know, codified the anti-discrimination laws and created these protect, you know, ostensibly created these protections in the law. But then what is, what exists as the law in the books and what actually happens in real life, it's like two totally different things. And we can't just stop at, oh, we passed these laws that say that we can't discriminate against each other. Um, And it's like about actually substance really changing people's lives what is g4s and what does it represent
1: so it's in the book defined i didn't look this up so i'm not sure if this is still true oh yeah yeah but the third largest private corporation in the world yeah and it's basically just provides a lot of security in a lot of different ways so For example, it provides a lot of the technology that we use at the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm -hmm. It also provides that technology at the border in Israel,
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: like runs private prisons all around the world. Yeah, Um, provides (laughs) weapons. Also provides private security. Yeah, for like like celebrities. Yeah, celebrities. Weird. Um, Yes. And they
0: run sexual assault centers right? for at-risk youth. Like, mm-hmm. they run the camera. <laughs> right. I think that that corporation is like a good one to understand how Palestine and Ferguson are related to each other because mil- the militarized police response to protests over Mike Brown was directly related to what happens in Palestine because she, Angela Davis, outlines how G4S will oftentimes like launch it's technology in israel palestine first and then like a lot of that ends up being resold or like or just sold directly to the us police force and there's, like, such a proliferation of arms that, like, federal government entities will just be like, okay, well, we don't need these war weapons anymore, but they're still here. So, here you go. here And they, like, give it out to local police forces like candy. Mm-hmm. So, that's why, like, you know, when protests did erupt in Ferguson, we saw, like, police that look like an army. Right. And the connecting thread is G4S, which... Sells weapons in Israel, Palestine, in the US, and like across the world. How are, what are other ways that Palestine and Ferguson are related to each
1: other? Well, I think like what you were saying is just this over militarization of police. Mm -hmm. And one example that Davis provided was. When the protests erupted in Ferguson, that folks in Palestine were, like, tweeting support mm-hmm. and basically recognizing a lot of, like, the tactics that were being used mm-hmm. in Ferguson. And she also, like... um With
0: tear gas. Yeah,
1: she talked about the tear gas and, like, how these canisters were, like, had not been seen in the U.S. before, but they yeah. were used in... Palestine,
0: And they're like, oh, we recognize the label, right. the G4S label. Like, here's how we dealt with it. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah.
1: So I think generally just like the over-militarization, over-policing.
0: Yeah. I think for me, the connection that was was kind of the most surprising of how explicit it was is that Israeli police forces have trained local yes. U.S. police forces. Like... Yeah, the police
1: chief of Ferguson. Yeah, was
0: trained in Israel. Yeah, and so it's like one thing to be like, "Oh, the weapons are the same," and it's another one, you know, to really realize like the tactics that are employed in Palestine are they're being taught to local police forces, you know, in these towns like Ferguson, in these cities like Ferguson, and
1: which we've definitely like seen yeah, before, like school the CIA, yeah. But, yeah, it's, like, kind of wild that this is still happening.
0: I just feel like not as many people know about it. Like, I remember, like, you were hesitant to discuss this book because you were like, I don't really know about Palestine. And I feel like that is, that is, like, a, a thing on the left.
1: Mm-hmm. And it is something she talks about in this book. Too. Yeah. Do you want to bring it up? She <laughs> I mean, basically, she's like, you need to get over yourself. <laughs> Which is true. Um, Just in a nice way, yeah, much nicer (laughs) than that. But I think it's just because, like, the theme of the book is how all of these struggles are so interwoven that, in order to create like global solidarity, we have to, you know, come together and understand how they are connected in order to create the global solidarity that's needed to create change.
0: Yeah. I also, I appreciate how I feel like she was, like, checking the U.S., like, in the international sphere. Like, she talked about Mm -hmm. how, kind of, like, parallel to our own uprisings about police, um, South Africa was also having its own own reckoning about the police and prison. And she was like, and I want to be really clear to say that, like, what she did, she quoted South African activists themselves who were, like, to be clear, we're not inspired by the U.S. Like, mm-hmm. we're not, like, reacting to the U.S. This isn't us, like, mimicking the U.S. Like, we have had our own struggle, protracted right. struggles with the police. And, like, mm-hmm. independently, we have arrived at the conclusion that we need to abolish our police force. And, like, please don't erase uh, that journey for us right. by claiming that, oh, because this happened in Ferguson, now this is happening in South Africa. How was it that Ferguson activists demanded more than reformist solutions, according to Davis?
1: I think that she talks about how basically, so kind of like what you're saying, it didn't necessarily, it doesn't erase anybody else's movement, but it does kind of inspire, like, solidarity around the world. Yeah. And... I think, I guess, like, I want to be careful how I say this, but I do feel like it was a moment that really brought a lot of attention to the systematic killing of Black people by police. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Definitely. And I like, like too, how she suggests that we should have a more expansive definition of what, like, Black revolution is or, like, what the Black radical tradition is, because she's like, I think within that we should include... Palestine and because she talked about how like they're like Palestinian freedom writers are kind of like were I guess in the time that she was writing in 2016 were fighting the apartheid and like doing so in a way that was really explicitly recalling like the black civil rights movement mm-hmm. and like the freedom rides of the civil rights movement and I appreciated that because I feel like I'm like, yes. Like, I feel like I situate myself in that. Like, I'm inspired by Black abolitionist thought, by Black radical thought, and, like, the liberatory work that I'm doing is also in service of that larger goal. Yeah, and I think also about Ferguson and how it was more than about short-term reformist solutions. It's, like, how long the protest lasted. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember... I guess now I want to look up how long they lasted because it was like months and months and months. And I remember like the media stopped covering it and like the protests were still happening. And like Davis was like, that was like revolutionary. Like the fact that like crowds of people were going out every single day when like the status quo is, if powerful people like ignore protesters long enough, like people will forget about it and disband. and. I would say that of that movement, like, that was one of the more impressive things, was just, and even after, because, like, the mayor was re- was proposing little reforms, mm-hmm. and they were like, well, we don't care. <laughs> like, yeah. we're still going to show up and still express anger over this, and I think that transformation of time was, like, really powerful. Yeah. Many people when discussing the Palestinian conflict say they must stop the violence, like Palestinians have to stop the violence, or there's like a demonization of Hamas. Why does that miss the point?
1: I would relate this to Ferguson and the protests, yeah, um, and just kind of like how we saw the focus shifted to like, oh, the looting, Mm -hmm. and like, this is so dangerous, and like all this property that's being destroyed. And it was just, like, yeah, that misses the point because it just, like, totally takes away from the underlying issues that folks are upset about Mm -hmm. and trying to shed light on.
0: Yeah. I feel like the fact that that that's the response shows why the protests are necessary in the first place. It's, like, you're more concerned about this business Mm -hmm. than about Black people dying at the hands of police. Right. Right. Why is global solidarity necessary in the way that we've been discussing? Because like she brings, you know, she brings up how even though there are these connections to the Palestinian conflict, like the occupation of Palestine, there's not you know that recognition like systematically amongst the whole left. Like, why is it necessary for us to improve them?
1: I think it goes back to like what we were talking about before is just like how the issues are related. Mm-hmm. Um And like this GS4, G4S mm-hmm. <laughs> security <laughs> company is like behind so much of what is happening. And <laughs> it's creepy. Like, who are these people? Right. Yeah. And like, I feel like we're not going to recognize that as like, an underlying issue if we don't recognize how widespread the issues are across the world.
0: Yeah. You know, it's like you have to, like, stab the octopus in its head. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you can't just, like, cut off a tentacle. Right. You know, like, we, you know, well, let's say we expelled G4S from the U.S. Well, that would really only be a temporary measure because G4S is all over the fucking world and has a lot of power. Right. So it's the metaphor
1: that comes to mind.
0: And also, I think for us, as like people who can, you know, you're an immigration lawyer, I'm here still talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) And like immigration is caused by global capitalism and like, you know, like people move because of systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I don't know. I think our lens is already kind of global just because of that. Yeah, because of that lens. But just, you know, it's like you always need to think about that if you care about immigration.
1: I also think it's, important to be able to learn from each other too Mm -hmm. Um, yes because yeah like chances are a lot of the um, like the feelings the issues are pretty uh, like similar Mm -hmm. um they're still around and so I think you know something that Davis emphasized was just like this erasure of history Mm -hmm. that happens Mm -hmm. to try and like put down movements Mm -hmm. and so, I feel like with global solidarity, we are able to better remember those histories and learn from those like tactics, I guess moving yeah
0: forward. what are ways that we can foster that then
1: i I think it is more like education and understanding of each other's struggles and of histories. yeah, I mean, like, I'm sure that I had read about like the Black Panthers ten point. Program mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. but re- re- rereading that again in this book, I was just like, wow, yeah, that's mm-hmm. exactly like what we're talking about today. So, right.
0: And that makes you feel less alone. For sure. Alone. Yeah. It makes you feel less overwhelmed
1: and a little bit more hopeful, mm-hmm. even though it is still the same issues. It's like, but
0: <laughs> I know it's like a double edged sword. It's like, oh, still, but it's like, right. We are a part of this fight.
1: Right. <laughs> for sure.
0: Yeah. I think for me, the way that I am trying to foster this is even just through the recording of this podcast and like foregrounding these connections, like, you know, connecting Palestine to the issue of the U S Mexico border. Mm-hmm. Like this is a podcast that's about the U S Mexico borderlands. And so people might be like, why is she, why is she talking about Ferguson? Like, why is she talking about Palestine? And it's like, because the same technologies that are being employed in the U.S.-Mexico border that make it deadly to cross are the things that have built the Israel-Palestine wall or the technologies that are, have literally made that an apartheid state.
1: Mm-hmm. And Haiti and Dominican Republic.
0: Yes. Wait, say more about Haiti and the Dominican Republic.
1: <laughs> I, I'm, I don't know very much, but I just know that it is the same technology mm. that basically the U.S. then influenced the Dominican Republic to
0: use that technology there at the border. Yeah, I know it's the U.S. The U.S. has been really heavily involved in like KDDR relations and you know, like Lothar Siapeña argues that the anti-Blackness that exists that like mm. undergirds a lot of the tensions is like a result of the U.S. like early U.S. influence and of like its text tech- on border Regulation and like border patrol too like right like the u.s deployed border patrol to police yes. the like haiti dr border why that's why global <laughs> solidarity is necessary in conclusion <laughs> what is the feminist approach that davis takes and how does she define a feminist methodology well i've
1: she really talks about the need for having an approach that's intersectional mm-hmm. that takes into account race, class, sexuality, and gender. She also talks a lot about this organization called transgender Gender Variant Intersex Justice Project. Mm-hmm. um and I feel like you know she kind of related her ideology to this organization's yeah. Um, feminist perspective uh which is very heavily focused on intersectionalism
0: yeah i think she talks about tgi jp too in her book abolition feminism now and she just talks about how like she's kind of using it as an example of, of like what she calls asking the other question like you know like if you're thinking about racism you have to ask where is the sexism in this mm-hmm. and she was like like TJJP is Black trans woman led organization. And like, you know, she was just arguing that, like, you know, if you're actually dedicated to like feminist liberation, like trying to understand society's boxes around what a quote unquote mm-hmm. woman is and like who is considered at the outer edges of right. that is like the best way to actually organize in that space. Like, she was like, She's, like, actually, and it sounds, like, weird and counterintuitive, but, like, she's, like, the people you wouldn't think of when you think, when you say woman as a category, Mm -hmm. it's, like, who you should take your leadership from.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate just, like, the emphasis on this, the definition of woman being very flexible Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because gender is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like similar to what you're saying, just like learn, relating it back to like the prison industrial complex of how much we learn, like, about the oppressions of women based on like when, for example, transgender women are incarcerated mm-hmm. and like the oppression they face. Yeah. Um, being misgendered and in a very violent place. Yeah.
0: Like, I, and I feel like the kind of like that example, like it's a good one to it, it's a good example of what I was just saying of like what happens when you ask the other question, mm-hmm. because then I feel like if you looking at trans people's experiences in jail and prison, like that's how you can realize like, Oh wait, like prison is itself gendered violence. Mm-hmm. Like the separation of people based on if you're a man or a woman, mm-hmm. like structures, everyday life in prison. And that's that's critical because it's like if you're not thinking about that as a feminist then next thing you know you're a carceral feminist and you're like advocating for locking up the rapists. that's like Mm -hmm. the solution for the problems of women and
1: yeah
0: that's counterproductive on that same note (laughs) why why must why must feminism
1: also involve
0: abolishing capitalism
1: i mean i think just going back to like the theme of the book that it's like all of the, we have to see all of these issues related. Mm-hmm. And so like when you think of feminism, you also have to think about like where that fits in with capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think I have <laughs> able to <laughs> articulate it that way. Well <laughs> no. Other than like the intersectionality. <laughs>
0: yeah. But I think like, even if we did abolish prisons and police, like, sexism would still exist.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, there would still be this, like, unequal distribution of power and wealth that's gendered. Mm -hmm. And so, to truly be liberated as women, like, we would need for there to be a total restructuring of the economy. Mm -hmm. Like, caregiving would need to be like, actually valued monetarily and so many other things Mm -hmm. that I mean, that, like, are really deeply layered. Why do we need to abolish the prison industrial complex if we want to abolish ICE and borders?
1: Similarly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think we have a pretty good understanding that, like, policing is rooted in racism. Um, And we also can see, like... That the prison industrial complex is rooted in racism. ICE and um, border patrol yeah. are forms of law enforcement, mm-hmm. so it's like all you know fueled by like similar forms of oppression.
0: Yeah, and I and as a practical matter, ICE would not be able to deport as many people as it does if local law enforcement wasn't willing to do a lot of the work for them, mm-hmm. like. Catching people through criminal enforcement is essential for ICE to operate as it does. And it just, like, wouldn't be the huge force that it is if it wasn't for the collaboration of police, sheriffs, jails, and prisons. And
1: especially, well, in any detention center... Which is part of the prison industrial complex. Yeah. Like, there's quotas. Um yes. and so like ICE and Border Patrol law enforcement are very actively working in collaboration to fill those quotas mm-hmm. um, to get a certain number of people to fill a certain number of beds. Mm-hmm. Because private corporations that run those prisons are paid based on yeah. the number of people who are in detention centers. Mm-hmm. And
0: it's Angela Davis points out that private immigration detention centers are actually the most profitable sector of the private prison industry, which I think in a very bleak way does make sense because I think, I think the mistreatment of migrants is like the most normalized in our society. And I think like detention centers for immigrants are where you see some of the most intense like material depravity where it's truly like the barest of bones that everything can be for the purpose of profit yeah Uh, like I think if you're an abolitionist you have to be thinking about immigration detention centers even just for the fact alone that it's the most profitable sector Mm -hmm. of that industry why is it that we need to abolish racism if we are going to abolish prisons
1: (laughs) I think I feel like Maybe I was thinking about this question when I started answering the other question. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I would uh, have the same answer.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Um, in what ways does the prison industrial complex stretch beyond jails and prisons themselves?
1: Kind of like the reverse of the question. You just said. <laughs> so, It also, like, influences our perception of what we see as good and bad, Mm. which is just, like, has an effect on, like, society. And one thing Davis talked about is just, like, how violent prisons are in the first place. Mm -hmm. And whereas they were supposed to be meant to be a place of reform, quote-unquote.
0: Yeah, that was how they were sold.
1: (laughs) Right, but
0: why all the reformists need to understand like the very idea of it was a reform okay it didn't
1: work (laughs) yeah it didn't work and it's a very difficult to imagine how prison can reform someone and yeah like it just really blows my mind that we are still painting it in this way like I was watching a documentary of someone who had been I'm not gonna say the name but someone who had to, and I know that this happens every single time uh, folks are asking for parole, Mm -hmm. but you have to like portray yourself in this way that you're like, oh my gosh, prison did so much for me. Like, I'm such a better person now. And it's just like how, like, we're like thinking the prison industrial complex for, and it's all just like, um, well, I don't know, maybe it did help this person, but it just... (laughs) seems like we are just like creating this story yeah. so that people can feel better about themselves and
0: like the, it. yeah, like the the judges yeah the judges
1: um and then maybe they can show some quote-unquote compassion and allow this person to be released under really awful conditions
0: yeah i know i i've been thinking about this a lot because about how this happens in the immigration
1: mm-hmm.
0: system too how like People basically have to tell a narrative that's like, exactly. my home country is the shithole country, and this is America where no discrimination exists and where the government protects everybody. Uh, I'm here to be a hard worker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will not use government services ever. <laughs> like, please let me in. And that's like, the, you know, even if like the reality is so sort much of more complicated than that. And like how. The process of having to say that is, like...
1: dehumanized. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think that's definitely the word that I was looking for, is this narrative that you have to make up. I feel, yeah. Yeah, was, because
0: reality is more complicated. It's, like, people love where they're from, you know? That's right. why people don't really understand that, like, despite what U.S. propaganda might have you think, like, not everybody... It's dying to be here it's like you know people are forced to be here and that's a
1: different that's a like fundamentally different thing mm-hmm. and I mean the other thing too is like incarceration even if for like 24 hours really interrupts your life
0: yeah and it's like it's
1: traumatizing wait a minute yeah not only the trauma but like everything else mm-hmm. that you had to like leave behind on the yeah. outside. Like yeah. it didn't just stop. Mm-hmm. Like your kids yeah. are going to add up. Like you no, yeah. might not be able People's to. People's kids get rent. taken
0: away. Kids
1: get taken away. Yeah. Like yeah. there's just so many issues that happen on the outside. And then like, are you even provided the resources that you need to like fully quote unquote integrate no. back into society? How
0: I mean, if people are, I feel like aren't even given proper notice of when their kids are getting taken away. Like, I feel like.
1: Yeah.
0: Even in, in the immigration detention center, like I just witnessed like people just being like DCS is trying to take my kid away. And it's mm-hmm. like, I can't communicate with any, I'm totally cut off from the outside world here. Like, you know, it just kind of feels like you're just being informed of what's going to happen mm-hmm. via mail because you can't, you know, you're just rendered. Like you're just very, you're isolated. Right. Yeah. That's why Obama's, I feel like I bring up Obama's framing a lot. But I because I feel like it really like defined a lot like a generation of like cr- certain type of criminal justice reformer where he was like, We're locking up the felons, not the families. Like that distinction doesn't make any sense. Like right. the people who you're calling felons are embedded in community. Right. And like that's how the prison industrial complex <laughs> like, reaches outside of the literal jail and prison is that it impacts like whole communities.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. But we'll remain hopeful. Yeah. We'll keep
0: fighting. <laughs> well, the last question I ask is what's inspiring you Okay. Lately. So we'll get, we'll, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Angela Davis was speaking regarding the 50th anniversary of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombings. And she's talking about how she fears events like this, that she says, quote, enact historical closures and make it seem like we're discussing something of the past, regardless of whether it has persisted to the present. How can we avoid doing that while also recognizing problematic history so as to not repeat it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, like some of it probably has to do with language because yeah when we like co- commemorate yeah certain events in history it is very much like oh like the civil rights era yeah and, and so it does just sound like there's this closure like yes we all got civil rights and <laughs> things are great now <laughs> <I'm> reagan. <laughs> and reagan so i mean i think it's just like needing to be conscious of like freedom is a constant struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still very much yeah, in- revolution.
0: is not a one-time event. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. We're still very much. Um, seeking the same basic needs Yeah, and or access to basic needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the issues are still very present. Um, maybe not in the same way but yeah, not exactly the same way. Right. Similar in a lot of ways
0: as well. Mm -hmm. Along the same vein, she also points out that naming streets or other public places after icons like Martin Luther King can actually be a diversion from how much racism has
1: persisted to this day. Do you agree with that? I do. um, I do. I think it's important. Yeah. Because, I do feel like in a, in a way it does commemorate certain events and certain people. Um, but again, like what Davis was saying is that we think of MLK and that's kind of like who we associate with like civil a rights. movement of a people movement, right? yeah. when it was really actually like, she talks about like the Montgomery bus boycott mm-hmm. um, being really led by women, domestic workers, black women, And how that's really just not talked about at all. So it does really distract from history. Yeah. And I think I also like kind of related it to like what's happening right now with this erasure of critical race. (laughs) theory (laughs) Um, And like banning of books, because even even this like watered down history where we're like, Oh, we're going to name this street. MLK is like still too progressive for so many people. It's pretty dangerous.
0: I know to introduce another layer of nuance to this though. Have you noticed <laughs> how so many of these streets that are named after icons are str- a street where a prison is mm-hmm. like, okay. For example, I'm thinking about a really specific place in Arizona, like, um, one of the is it the yuma prison? It might be the yuma prison. It's on Cesar Chavez Boulevard. Oh. This fucking like huge prison that where like actually like a lot of undocumented people end up yeah. going to do their um incarceration time for like crossing the border twice mm-hmm. twice or more than twice. And like I've read black folks talk about how there's like a lot of Martin Luther King streets in like intentionally created like urban ghettos Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: and how like that actually can psychologically fuck with you a little bit when you're Mm -hmm. like, it's kind of like an act of support. It's like, it's a fucked up message on the part of the state. It's, It's like a fucked up subliminal one. Like, oh, you know, yeah, there, there's this narrative of progress and Yeah, we've recognized some brown people like after the fact. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like we're still going to incarcerate the majority of you. Yeah. I feel like that's what that's giving.
1: Also like... In places like Arizona. So I guess, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Mm. From your explanation too, it's kind of just like, oh, here's your history. You can like deal with that. Yeah. But like on the other side, like we're not really going to incorporate it into what was mainstream.
0: But that's what makes it so psychologically fucked up because it's mm-hmm. like, Oh, your history and mm-hmm. is what results in that is the prison.
1: Right. Or this poverty. Mm-hmm. I, one more thing about this too is I think I said, like, I do feel like representation matters sometimes.
0: No, it definitely does. Like this is why it's a complicated conversation, especially in a place like Arizona, where, this is like where Mexican American Studies was banned. Mm-hmm. That man Tom Horn is running again, <laughs> again. for yeah. Superintendent of
1: Tucson. Like but not always. Because like some of the most harsh immigration judges have been like Latinas <laughs> or like,
0: <laughs> yeah. that I've encountered.
1: I don't know. It's also, I mean, Arizona. I mean, where are
0: we gonna go with that? <laughs>
1: because then we gotta talk about uh border patrol insane. Exactly. That's where I was going. <laughs> I mean, that's like particularly something you can notice in Arizona or like border towns.
0: Yeah. I guess I didn't finish the sentence. Like I said, Border Patrol, it's like majority Latinx. Yeah. Like more than 50% of the the workforce
1: is Latinx. Which could be like a whole other podcast. <laughs> it could like. When
0: Joseph and I were, we were in DC, our Uber driver was like, I was trying to make conversation with us because we're from Arizona and he was like, oh yeah, my friend just moved out there to work for border patrol. (laughs) But that actually is the state of our economy that like, if you are someone with a high school diploma, your job options are really limited and like the border patrol people are paid well compared to what you can make otherwise exactly. with a high school diploma yeah. and have like decent retirement benefits and stuff. And there's, I feel like, kind of similar to like how the army like predatorily recruits like mm-hmm. low income communities of color. Border patrol also sure. kind of like really predatory, like they do like the
1: ride alongs. Did you
0: yeah. ever do that?
1: Um, I feel like I did with what? police one time what? when I was like really
0: young <gasps> see that's just... what I'm saying bitch like when you were really young when you didn't really understand exactly. when you couldn't have a political opinion about exactly. it really when you were just like, like oh my god this, this is literal indoctrination <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like these are cool guys yeah. like maybe you want to be one of these guys in the future uh. mm-hmm. so Davis mentioned that <laughs> Orlando Patterson is someone who theorized that the very concept of freedom, like the fact that we have that word and that idea actually must have been one that was imagined by slaves. What can we learn from that?
1: Well, I think it definitely teaches us to be critical of like, the history that we're learning or we have learned mm-hmm. because she also talked about like how, you know, mainstream history mm-hmm. um, really talks about Tom like, Thorne's history. Yes. Lincoln being like the primary, like liberator, liberators, the, sl- the people who were enslaved. So um, it really, it goes back to kind of just like, making individuals like these heroic figures that we really need to look up to instead of like social movements and people who mobilized for their own liberation.
0: yeah exactly and I feel like actually in particular people who are enslaved, I feel like there's there's already like the predisposition to assuming that they had that they didn't have agency or that they were submissive in some sense. And I think that that contributes, that's what contributes to the ease with which people accept these narratives. Mm -hmm. Like, oh yeah, no, it's probably just like, Lincoln had to say something for people to revolt and run away and like say that there was an end to slavery. And it's like, no, actually it was life or death. And people were like, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to liberate myself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And she brings up, up to that WB Du Bois framed the events that led up to the Emancipation Pro- Proclamation as a general stripe on the part of enslaved people. And I feel like that's a total reframe of this top-down narrative of Lincoln being the kind, you know, the kind person. And I think like, it's important to recognize that because, it's that was a politician taking advantage of the moment. Like
1: mm-hmm.
0: people were liberating themselves amidst the conflict, and he, in order for him to make it seem like he was still kind of in control of things, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But it's like from his own personal writings and shit, it's clear he he re- he didn't really care either way. Mm-hmm. Like. He just wanted to keep the country together. And if that meant keeping slavery around, cool. (laughs) Like, he personally didn't care. And I feel like recognizing that about most people in power and I think recognizing how far people are willing to go themselves, like, for their own liberation makes it so much easier to just discard that narrative of Lincoln liberating Mm -hmm. people and allowing yourself to think, like, oh, yeah, right, like...
1: That is what happened. <laughs> just definitely perpetuates this idea that we really need capitalism because, yeah, in capitalism, there's like a few main people who control things, or just like okay. even like this. Yeah, like we system. need bosses. Like, we need a president. Yeah, we need um, leaders. Right, who can like show us the right way when like we know how, like we know best how to take care of ourselves we know
0: best what we need Mm -hmm. well that see that's a thing that I think about with like the Martin Luther King veneration because it's like he was an important person doesn't need to be celebrated then at the same time like that kind of veneration like is what stops people from recognizing their own power Mm -hmm. because it kind of when it's given to somebody who's so exalted, people are just like, oh, well, that's Martin Luther King. Yeah. Like, that's not me. Right. That's not me, but Borja. Like, I'm just living my regular <laughs> life. And then it's it's like,
1: it's kind of de-radicalizing mm-hmm. for that reason. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it is like, you know, what Davis was talking about is that like the U.S. will go to these great lengths to dissuade people from mobilizing Mm -hmm. um she brings up asada shakur a lot yeah talking about how like the fbi like randomly put her on the most wanted list in like 2016 yeah and how this is like very much connected to really preventing people from like gaining like recognizing their own power
0: yeah like her autobiography was so impactful for me. One of the things that I remember the most was her quote saying, we have nothing to lose but our chains. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it makes total sense that that kind of person, like, they don't want someone reading her their auto- her autobiography <laughs> being like, fuck
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was an effort to, like, continue to frame the civil rights era as a time of before you know, even like, yeah, like oh, I don't. Know, it's, it's this weird kind of double edged thing where it's like, we we really liked Martin Luther King and like we really liked like all those disruptive sit ins and stuff, but we don't like that anymore. Like that's right. not necessary yeah. anymore, right? I feel like it's how people remember him and how they relate
1: that time period to now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even like, well, I'm thinking about like a specific instance having to do with unionizing when yes. like, employers are like, oh my god!" <laughs> employers are like, wow, look at all these like great benefits that we provide to employees, which these benefits are being provided because unions organize to like demand these benefits, um, which management was very much against, uh, or employers were very much against, I'm getting too personal. Um, <laughs> not um, me employers <laughs> <laughs> and yeah it's just like then there's also like so there's a complete disconnect between like where we are now and like how we got there and then like the continued mobilizing to make things better that needs to happen to make things better and we just like somehow refused refused or like we're told that we we don't really need to make things better I guess
0: Um, yeah because it's like the narrative is that we have progressed mm -hmm. since the civil rights era like we have a legal framework in place like if you are discriminated against in the workplace you can just file an EEOC complaint (laughs) like you don't need to strike anymore because we have these laws in place that don't make that make it unnecessary for you to do that like somebody already did that for you Mm -hmm. like you know now you can do the civilized thing of filing a lawsuit and waiting five years for justice. Wow, well, complaints. hmm <laughs> <laughs> Angela Davis points out that Reconstruction was a super radical time where Free Black people fought to bring public education to the South, for example, and this is something that actually poor white children ended up benefiting from. What are other types of progress that occurred during that time period that are under-discussed today?
1: So she also talked about progressive laws challenging male supremacy, which I did not look up, but I'm very interested. And black people being elected to office Mm -hmm. just the fact that this is a period of time largely from 1865 to 1877 that has been erased
0: so we don't know a lot about it yeah like this came up um in the merrill versus milligan oral arguments this week because alabama's trying to say that the 14th amendment's equal protection clause requires race neutrality when this was a reconstruction amendment that was passed, like literally in an effort to create equity in the future between the black freedmen and the white settlers. And justice Jackson was just like, but like, how could you say that the 14th amendment requires race neutrality when it was literally about abolishing the system of yeah. about racist slavery and Conservatives are like sticking to this narrative and they're like, no, like the Constitution is colorblind. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's where we are in 2022. (laughs) (laughs) How is Angela Davis's explanation of terrorism different than the mainstream understanding?
1: I think she focuses a lot on like basically the terrorism that the U.S. has committed Mm -hmm against its own people Mm -hmm. and basically also like an erased history that we don't acknowledge or like unacknowledged terror is how she what she calls it I think Mm -hmm. um and like starting back to you know like genocide of Native Americans and like not even acknowledging slavery as terrorism Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. terrorism is a word that came into fashion like post nine eleven, and I feel like it's really racialized word
1: mm-hmm.
0: so it's like a xenophobic word like it's really de- it's always deployed against people who are perceived as outside of the U.S. so like mm-hmm. just like not white Americans basically and I mean I, I'm not saying that the January six people need to be categorized as terrorists because actually what that does is it just will ultimately reinforce this thing that I'm talking about <laughs> about how like migrants of color are more harshly treated and criminalized but I just appreciate that she like kind of asks us to interrogate, like what does it really mean to terrorize somebody? Oh, really? And then when you look <laughs> at that definition, you're like, oh, like the US terrorizes Sada Shakur, like the US terrorizes like black people. Like that is a true definition of terrorism. And I just appreciate that kind of reframing because I feel like even to this day, like that isn't really interrogated, like who's considered a
1: terrorist. Mm. It's really like what is convenient for the U.S. in that moment, in that yeah, politically, label, mm-hmm. yeah, terrorist.
0: Because I think like that's one of the. I mean, that's one of the things that's sanitized about the civil rights era is that even Martin Luther King himself was like thought of as a terrorist right. by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. It, it's a, it's, a, uh, yeah, it's kind of it's like this malleable concept. It's really just like who are we afraid of at this moment? Right. Like who do we see as a threat to the U.S. settler colonial state at this moment?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The book was written in 2016, and it mentions that Leonard Peltier remained incarcerated for the alleged murders of two FBI agents. He has always maintained his innocence, but he is still incarcerated today. He asked Biden for a new trial
1: earlier this year in March.
0: Were you aware of his story before reading this?
1: I had heard about him. Same. I hadn't read a lot about um, the story, but yeah, definitely heard the name and know folks who are like advocates for his release. Mm -hmm. I definitely
0: need to learn more about his case, to be honest, Mm -hmm. and like would want to be connected to people that are working on his case because I need to learn more about it. But it also just like
1: there were so many people that she talked about too. That yeah. Still incarcerated. Yeah. for Like 20 years, 40 years, like decades. And it's just like, this is wild. Like, and like the fact that these folks are still holding on, like it's so upsetting and just like heartbreaking. I know
0: the, one of the people that you mentioned was Albert Woodfox and he actually was released later after this book was published. He died last month. Um, sadly, so breast in power. But he was potentially the person who has spent the longest time in solitary confinement of anybody in the U.S. He was in solitary confinement 44 years before being released. And I, I, I saw him after he was recently released at the National Lawyers' Home Conference in 2016 in New York. Oh my God, and I remember me and Joseph were like walking the streets and then... We like saw him from before. You said, "I think that's Albert Woodfox," and <laughs> oh I was like, God. "What?" <laughs> and we just like really respectfully said hello. I really, res- <laughs> I literally said like, "Hello, <laughs> I really respect oh. you." <laughs> and then he was like, "Oh yeah, right on, like whatever." And I, the next year, I saw Oscar Lopez Rivera, mm. who was released after being incarcerated for decades as well for being a freedom fighter for Puerto Rico, like in meeting both of these men, like what was so astounding to me, because Albert Woodfox spoke at at the conference and so did Oscar López Rivera. Like they both had the same politics that they had when they went in. And I remember with Oscar López Rivera, like he literally gave a speech where he was just like, Puerto Rico must be free. Like I have just, like never known this more to be true than now and it's even more urgent than when I went to prison for this and I'm inspired by the young people that are continuing the fight and that like honestly every time I talk about it I get goosebumps and I get chills because I can't imagine being incarcerated for that long and coming out and like the first thing you do is you go and you talk to people who are like-minded, like, you know, like the next generation of like lawyers and organizers and activists. And you're like, we must free Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Like, how unbreakable is yeah. that? Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, okay. So then you send what has
1: been inspiring you lately? all right well okay first of all this book was inspiring Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. that was really helpful and I think in terms of immigrant rights Mm -hmm. which is where I'm the kind of like world I'm in yeah where your head and and your heart is. is yes I think it's really just You know, first of all, I guess this is more like how I don't burn out. Um, Yes, that's important. It's more reminding myself that I can, I'm only one person. Yes. I can only do so much. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these issues will be around tomorrow. The work (laughs) will always be there. Yeah. Um, But, you know, like, again, like Davis was saying in this book, you know, (laughs) okay. We all die, um, yeah. and we might never see change before yeah. we die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at least we're trying. Mm-hmm. We're trying to do the best that we can mm-hmm. to create change, and I feel I feel better and better about that every day.
0: So, I know what you mean because I feel like I've also been thinking about this a lot. Like, I read Faces at the Bottom of the Well for the first time recently, Derek Bell's book, where he, like, I think the subtitle is The Permanence of Racism in America, and he basically argues that we just need to accept that fact of the permanence of racism in the U.S. and, like, need to start thinking about how we're going to organize and think with that assumption accepted. And it's a complicated one because you might think, oh, well, it's just going to make people despair. But, like, his whole point is, like, we will never change our reality if we don't grapple with what our reality actually is. Mm -hmm. And like he, the book is basically him just trying to convince you of this, of like, you probably won't see the kind of change that you want to see in your lifetime. And the fight for that future is a beautiful and transformational thing in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And the world is a better place for it, Mm -hmm. even if the utopic vision that you have isn't realized Mm -hmm. tomorrow or even by the time you die.
1: Yeah. Sort of like this. You just reminded me of another point that she makes where it's like, you know, like it's great to have radicals (laughs) on certain issues, but we start to see change when we move the people who we didn't necessarily think that we could move before. Mm. And I think like that resonates more with me now as I feel like I'm sort of running out of energy Um, (laughs) because before I feel like I would have been like, no, that's dumb. (laughs) (laughs) We got to be as loud as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I feel like it can even be in like everyday conversations that we have. Mm -hmm. Like, And, you know, like, I do feel like as I'm surrounded more with like youth in my family, (laughs) young people coming into my family, um, I feel really inspired by them because yeah. there's the youth are so smart yes. <laughs> and I'm just like dang I don't think I was that smart when I was your age. <laughs> I know no. but yeah, I was they done, just not as aware. <laughs> exactly yeah they have just such a great perspective and I feel like a lot of times that is really what keeps me going.
0: I agree I like really appreciate my Gen Z coworkers. like I don't know I feel like they're just there's just like thir- certain things about the modern workplace that they're not going to accept <laughs> I love that <laughs> like on to you know not to be rude but it's just it's a totally different vibe than Gen X mm-hmm. I feel like their vibe was like like amongst the people of color it was like let's try and assimilate like <laughs> like let's like if as long as we wear respectable ties and suits, like they'll accept us, and like Gen Z is like, fuck that, yeah. Take your mental health care day. Go like, yes. Get drunk in the park. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like tell you that.
1: Yeah, honestly, like, I almost, I feel like Gen Z is like bringing like is really bringing like body positivity. Yes, and. Like for me, that's like huge. Yeah. Um,
0: yes, yeah, because we grew up in the early 2000s. Yeah. The tabloid fodder <laughs> and like the low rise jean era. Yeah. And the Paris Hilton, I was just gonna say body family. type. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, they're so unapologetic, and it's really making people upset. And I love it.
0: Me too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. So, on that note, Kachibonas, I hope that you enjoyed this lit review. Obviously, I think we both recommend the book. Yes, for
1: sure.
0: And, yeah, stay tuned for the next lit review. Bye! Thank you. You can support the podcast first and foremost by becoming a Patreon. Apart from getting access to amazing conversations like these and early access to all the public episodes, you also are helping me sustain this podcast through all of the changes that the podcasting industry is going through and allow me to continue putting out this content. I appreciate you all and just suggest that if you appreciated this episode that you become a patron for as little as $3 a month. You can be part of the Radio Cachimbona podcasting community that makes this whole thing work. You can also follow the podcast at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and continue the conversations there. A completely free way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Also, just sharing the episode the links that you think will resonate with your friends really helps too. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Cachimbonas!